Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel listener on the New Books Network. Today we've got a very special guest, Marcus Whitney, and I'm here together with my co-host, Kimon uh, Fontakidis. Um, Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. Would you like to just like introduce yourself in a minute or two, not like the full half-hour introduction, just the short one, uh, for someone who you know is reasonably intelligent, but perhaps for some reason has never heard of you yet? Yeah, for sure. And, and quite a few people have not heard of me. Thanks for having me, Richard. Um, so uh, my name is Marcus Whitney. I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm an entrepreneur and venture capitalist in the healthcare space um, and uh, also a, a co-founder and minority owner of our Major League Soccer team, Nashville Soccer Club. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Now, you were introduced to us by uh, Javon McCormick, who um, founded Scribe Media. And I think that's our route to coming across you. And we he was the first the first person we did together on our show and is one of our most popular popular guests. So you're coming from a good stable. So, uh, and but the biography I've got of you kind of starts when you moved to Tennessee, into Nashville in 2000. And we like digging a bit into the sort of the backstory of like, where did entrepreneurship come from? So could you tell us a bit about how you grew up and whether there were any like entrepreneurial role models in your in your childhood or high school or wherever? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, um, and uh, both my parents worked jobs for most of my uh, adolescence. But my mom did leave uh, her company. She she was a professional medical biller um, and uh, she did leave to form a company with one of my uh, one of my best friend's dads, who was a lawyer. uh, And they started Caduceus Medical Billing. Uh, and it was really cool. Like, um, you know, she had her own office and she hired all her friends, uh, which were all like uh, moms of my classmates, you know what I mean? And so it was, it was, it was this really cool thing. And I didn't think, was it in the basement? It. Was it like, was this like in the basement of your house? Just where was the office? Was it, no, did no, it get, no, 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 she, <laughs> no, no, no. She had a proper office, uh, you know, that was, that was away from the house, uh, <laughs> over on, uh, on Ralph Avenue. Um, and it was like right around the corner from, from Howie's law office. Uh, uh Howard was the guy who she, she yeah. partnered with. Um, but no, you know, it was, it was this thing that I didn't think much about. I didn't think much about the fact that my mom was starting a business because she was doing the same line of work. Um, and she always was able to sort of uh, find ways to hire her friends into whether she was working for somebody else or, or working in her own business. But I do remember just that she had uh, an immense amount of control over her time during the time that she was running her own business. And she was you know, president of the PTA at my school and was always available for activities that I had, you know, wrestling matches, football games, track meets, all that kind of stuff. And so I think I kind of took it for granted, quite frankly. But, you know, I think when I became a parent, uh, the pressures on on time uh, that you have and just the amount of flexibility that you have as an entrepreneur, uh, it started to kind of light up in my brain and like, oh, yeah, you know, there's there's a reason why mom was always able to be around. Right. Uh, And it was because she controlled her own her own business. Mm. That's an interesting insight because a lot of people sort of imagine that parenting and uh, entrepreneurship are kind of incompatible. And depending on how you do it, for some people it it is, but it does mean that you can schedule your your working day to meet your family, I guess. Very much, very much. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, generally speaking, especially in the outset of, of uh, launching a business, you're going to work more hours, right? You know, so I think that's the incompatibility thing that most people think about, right? But uh, the control of your time and the ability to to when the most important things come up, you know, whether that be a performance at school or a parent teacher conference, or, hey, the kid gets gets sick, someone has to drop everything and go pick them up. You know, those are things that uh, even though 
in aggregate, you're working more, you do have the kind of control with nobody sort of over you to say, hey, this is a priority. I'm going to be there for this for this kid in this moment. And I think interestingly enough, like uh, kids tend to remember those incidents, right? They tend to remember those those experiences where, hey, this this thing really mattered or I was really vulnerable at this time. And was my parent able to be there at that time? Mm and you were doing like competitive sports you already mentioned your mum was showing up so you kind of you you had kind of like solid parents who were like going to PTA type meetings and coming to watch you play play sports and stuff like that but were you did you have any like side hustle when's the first time you ever thought that did you do any kind of like working for other people or or any little businesses when you were a kid or anything like that no nothing like that and largely because my parents um my mom in particular, she just kept me so busy. Uh, you know, I always had extracurricular stuff planned for me. Uh, so my weekends were not my own for a very, very long time. And then when I got into high school, you know, once I started doing competitive sports, it was like, okay, well, football games were on Saturdays, you know? Um, and, uh, when I was wrestling, I mean, goodness, I mean, I was in early in the morning and then late at night we were, we had practices and then on the weekends, often we had tournaments. Right. And so I didn't have enough of my own time to really have a side hustle. Quite frankly, I was also involved in like school clubs, but what I think was interesting about that was, um, I was not kind of a five day a week work person. You know, I had built the work ethic through these other planned things that was sort of built into just my modus operandi uh, so that when it came time to do entrepreneurship, it wasn't a struggle for me to get past, you know, 40 hour a week mm. working as a, as a thought process. I was always. Hey, tell us know, a little, tell us a little more myself. actually, cause this is good. This is very interesting. So like um, just tell us more about like, I don't know what sports you were doing and then if you can just like talk it through, like how long did it take for you to, to decide, like I get to basically focus on, or what was the turning moment, uh, you know, that, that happened that allowed you to, to, or that you decided, Hey, I want to do this business or did you set up a business, but maybe just talk us through a little bit more about the, the story, the history of, of, of how you got there through, for, through yeah. cause I'm sensing through sports, I'm sensing that, um, uh, sport gave you maybe competitiveness, organization, yes. hard yes. work, a lot of these yes. like core things you need actually to be successful. But, but maybe you can just talk because it's, it's actually really interesting to hear it from. I don't think this is the first time we have somebody that comes from like, this, uh, like a sports background into entrepreneurship. So I think that's really interesting, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I, I, I continue to, to carry that through in my life today. I'm a, you know, uh, I'm a martial artist and I, I, I do competitive jujitsu and I, I continue that, that, that thread in my life because I, I do think it, it translates very well. Um, I wasn't a college athlete. I was a high school athlete. So that's important to sort of just signal uh, and was never okay. a professional athlete, but, but in high school, I was very, very involved and I was a state champion wrestler and, you know, oh, sort wow. of, one at the cities and in track and went to the empire state games as a decathlon uh, as a decathlete didn't have as much success in football but you know played really hard and was you know one of the team captains and all that kind of good stuff so um you know i think i think that, that there are some lessons that you learn and actually you know different lessons you know you learn different lessons in football than you learn in wrestling like wrestling it's team sport in terms of aggregating the points but you step out on the map by yourself and you really have to you know persevere and be able to work through really hard spots and sometimes winning a match literally comes down to the last five seconds and who wants it more um and pushing when you don't think you have anything left and football is very much a team sport it's like you know it, it the most important thing is that you're working in lockstep with everyone else and when a play is called you know the play and you know the right direction to move in and the pace and what your what your role is in order for the whole play to be executed correctly so there are these different things that you learn from from different types of sports um you know i think preparation i think uh is is a really important thing and understanding the importance of preparation and, and pre-work uh you know that's that's 
definitely played out for me in the long game as an entrepreneur, just understanding that I needed to work on any skill um, that I had a deficiency in or that was really important to my success. I've always had no problem doing that. Um, and and then, you know, again, like hard work, just general, just hard work. I mean, when if, you, if you've ever uh, done sports at a reasonable competitive level, like you understand what it means to work to exhaustion and that that actually does pay dividends later on, like, you know, when you're actually performing. And so being able to have that translate into the business world has been very, very valuable for me. I don't think it's the only way to go, but for me, it's been, it's been key and, and formational. Now I, I, uh, I started my business life probably in college when I started to have more freedom of, of my time. You know, my parents were not there scheduling every moment for me. Uh, and, uh, and I, I just started to explore my own personality and that led to me dropping out of college and getting into hip hop music and treating that sort of as my first business. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot through through that process as well, uh, mostly how, how little I knew about how business worked. And, and so tell uh, us, and this is getting like super interesting. Come on, you're a high school, like super athlete. Then you go to college and you discover that you're into that you like whatever hip hop and you and you yeah. find. But I have to hear with the I have to hear the angle. Like, what was the business angle? Like, wait, you like hip hop music. But what was the were you setting up? I don't know, like raves, well, concerts or like, no, no, the, no. No, it was it was it was more like so so that the, the timing matters, I think, on this. So it was 93. So this was kind of like a, a a golden era of hip hop. So if you think about like what albums were being released, then you're talking right. about, you know, Biggie Smalls and, and Nas and uh, Jay-Z came along in 96. That was a little bit later. But Wu-Tang came out in that era. So like, you know, this is like really a lot of iconic stuff was coming out then. So it was a very strong cultural moment for for hip hop. Tribe Called Quest. It was just incredible. Right. Fuji's. Um, and so the idea of like you know, creating music and creating a label um, that started to that started to become an in vogue thing to do. And, you know, when you're 17, 18, 19, you know, that's kind of where your head is at. It's just a reality. Right. It's like, what's cool. Yeah. Right. What, what's cool. Yeah, you want to yeah, do what's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So so I wanted to do what was cool. And, and I was you know, I was I was decent at it, you know, good enough to like say, hey, I'm going to give a run at it and had a good time with with my friends that, that were working on it. It wasn't compatible with being good at school. Um, but, but there was, there was something else that was, that was happening that in hindsight, I can see that for a very long time, I would say maybe even up until, uh, the last few years of my life, I didn't fully appreciate, which was, um, I am a experiential learner. So I learn through doing, um, it is very difficult for me to sort of sit in a classroom setting. And I actually really had problems with this in high school, but I was able to skirt through it quite, you know, quite frankly, because of my. Uh, athletics like I realize now they were kind of letting me off the hook with a lot of my classroom performance because I was really good at sports and I was a you know student government leader and things like that um I probably got passed in a couple of places where I shouldn't have gotten passed um Spanish in particular uh <laughs> but but you know like like when I got to college none of those safeguards were there and I just sort of fell through the cracks very very quickly um it, but but what I was learning was uh, it, it wasn't that I was dumb or something. The grades didn't reflect my level of intelligence. It just started to reflect how I learned um, and what I was motivated by. And I was motivated by autonomy and mastery. You know what I mean? Like I was motivated by, hey, you know, uh, and this is also really important about, about hip hop in that time. You couldn't sound like anyone else. And so you had to really dig deep and find your own individual style. And that was actually a difficult challenge to like. That's right. Were you performing people... or are you actually trying to get performers together I just, i'm trying to understand both, where you both, actually both. okay yeah 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 so so me and my friend sean we were forming a label and trying to like recruit other you know and we didn't have a hard time recruiting other other kids right. but you know you know the kids who are not paying attention to school and doing this aren't necessarily like uh, the most consistent people so like he and i were 
significantly more consistent than everyone else. But we were, we were, you know, uh, writing and performing and Sean was the primary producer, but I was sort of a secondary producer and we, you know, pressed up CDs and, and put them out and all that kind of stuff. We were, you know, we went to a bank trying to get a loan to start our label. Of course we didn't get it. You know what I mean? It kind of, kind of went through all the, all these different things, but it, it was a learning process. You know, I remember. I just want to cut it, cut in there that for people listening, I mean, you've achieved some su- considerable success in your life, Marcus, but like the fact that you wandered into a bank and asked for a loan, there are other people who think about that, but actually, and I've had that experience, Kim, this business of people saying no, and you just like, you realize that it's probably not their fault, they're doing their job, and you're just not meeting the standards. You learn a lot by that sort of thing, don't you? You do. You do. Yeah. I mean, you, you learn a lot through all the mistakes and the brick walls you run into. There's no question. Right. Um, and I think, you know, now I'm, look, I'm 45 years old now and I feel like I've got a whole nother life in, in front of me. And so, you know, it's like, it's fine to, to have, to have, uh, you know, a life full of mistakes and, and errors and, and failures because, you know, the, the, the learnings you get from them, they really do stick and they, they help you to be sharper, uh, you know, in the long run. So anyway, I've rambled a little bit, but, you know, hopefully, you know, answered your questions. Well, quite often we, I mean, your, your, your book reads a little like a sort of entrepreneurship, a very personal entrepreneurship text because it's very, very well structured and so like well set out and logical, but we like much more digging into the personal story of like, so we're going to ask you, is this, this is more about you than your book, although I, I have yeah. read through it and there's a lot to learn and I will, we will come back to some of the content, but when you arrived sure. in Nashville, when you arrived in Nashville, what was your, what was your business? Did you have like an idea of what you're going to do and what your business was going to be? Where did it, and where did your, your first idea? Sorry, can I ask? Was Nashville because of the music? I mean, did you choose? Was is Nashville? So there, yeah. So maybe also why Nashville? Both, both fantastic questions, right? So um, there's a portion of my life that's not really covered in the book, and you know, is sort of the okay. I gave you the college dropout music thing, and then then there's Nashville. But there's this period in between where uh, I end up in in Atlanta, somewhat for the for the music reasons, because there was a a growing music scene in Atlanta at that time, uh, but. You know, I, I started a family, you know, I met a woman, you know, had kids. And then and then we decided to move to Nashville because she had grown up in Nashville, had a, had a community here. And, and we didn't quite have that community in Atlanta. So and how old um, were you just to give our, the listeners 20, a sense 24, of where? 24, 24, 24. OK, cool. 24. Yeah. So 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 24, uh, uh, a, a one plus year old kid on the way, no degree. Um and you know waiting tables that's that's how i arrived in nashville so definitely not thinking about a business at that point um definitely thinking about how i'm going to get money on a daily basis it's literally like day to day how i'm going to get money and so the very first thing i did when i moved to town was literally the first thing within an hour of driving into town was i got a job i got a i got a um, waiter job at rio bravo cantina i had waited tables at the same restaurant in atlanta so i was already in the system i knew the menu had a uniform was able to walk on the floor, start making money from day one. So that my focus initially was just like, get a job, make money, find a place to live, stabilize, right? And that that was probably a three to four month period um, that started on Labor Day. Uh, and then towards the end of that, I was really like, I got to do better than this because, you know, some days you make a lot of money, some days you don't make a lot of money and uh, started the process of teaching myself how to code. Um, so... Yeah, that was that was so, oh, wow. so I, I didn't start I didn't start the business thing for years while I was in. Okay, but this you know, is my, so my, cool. My no, this is really cool. Was, yeah, this is so cool. So like t- 
teaching yourself what does that mean like let's start like what like how do you teach yourself was that like youtube <laughs> like what how do you teach yourself how to cope uh you like so, how do you start great question so it's the year 2000 <laughs> so youtube's not a thing right exactly right code academy is not a thing right coding boot camps are not a thing um what is a thing are books so you go to the bookstore <laughs> you know this thing that used to exist you buy computer books <laughs> And you read them, and then you try to do the things in the books on your computer at home. That's that's how you teach yourself how to code back then. There's, Marcus, there's, there's I was no, listening. There's, Marcus, no, there's Mar no ecosystem for teaching yourself how to code in, in 2000. In 2000. I was, I've been listening to you, Marcus, because I, I feel like I, you're a kindred spirit because I'm also an experiential person. I I, 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 I don't want to say that you stink at school, but I stink at school. I stink at formal. <laughs> I stink at formal learning things. So... Uh, that doesn't sound like it fits to me, this part, like re learning from a book. I would struggle to try to learn coding from a book. Uh, yeah, that must have been it, a real, it, real slog for you, actually. It, to... it, it, it was a slog, but I don't struggle learning from a book. I struggle learning in a classroom. Oh, right? so, okay. So, so grabbing the book, reading the book, and then um, writing programs, that was experiential. You know what I mean? Okay, because you're actually uh, doing it, and then you were I'm learning doing from it. doing it. Okay, I'm doing you didn't it. have. Yeah, exactly. I, I was more thinking you would have like a mentor or somebody who would like show you, like that would give you that you know no. That benefit. No, the closest thing I had to a mentor was there were um there were and still are uh, user group meetings, which are like just these enthusiast meetings for people who are enthusiastic about technology. You know, it's kind of a blend of people who are experienced programmers and people who are aspiring programmers, generally speaking, make up these meetings. And so uh, probably about three or four months into my self-learning journey, I started attending these meetings uh, and, you okay. know, got some mentorship, not direct mentorship, but sort of indirect mentorship. I was like learning through these people who were um, who I could see. I was like, oh, they're employed and they're doing cool stuff. And I could like go to these meetings and watch them, um, but didn't really have sort of the direct mentorship. No. And the idea of learning to code, was that just because it was 2000 and the internet dot-com bubble was still, yep. hadn't, hadn't yet burst, so you just like picked up, this is a cool thing. Where you people, got it. Okay, it was as simple as that. You got yeah. It, it, yeah, and also um, it was heavily publicized during the dot-com boom. It's hard for people who didn't live through that era to, to remember, but it was heavily publicized that, you know, um, high school kids were making six figures, right? You yeah. know, there were images of like kids riding around on skateboards in offices, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so that was like, okay, there's an opportunity. There's a lane for me, you know, um, I'm still young. I don't have a degree. If I learn this thing, I think I can go get a, a career going without, without credentials. Mm -hmm. And did that happen? It did. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The day after my second son was born, I got a, I got a junior programming job at a company called HealthStream, um, you know, and, and, uh, made $45,000 a year and, you know. That's quite and a jump for that. I, I what was a way to, what were jump. you making? What were you making as a way to, what was the up, uptick from? I, I can't even remember. I just know I was able to pay the bills, but I can't even remember like what the aggregate, you know, if I would have. Yeah, waiter jobs are not like that, Richard. They're not like a salaried position. They're like some weeks you make more, some months you make more, some months you make yeah. more. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you make $2.15 an hour plus yeah. tips. I was okay. a waiter, more or less similar, a little yeah. bit. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit older than you, but a, a similar sort of. But can you remember how you, can you remember how you felt when you got that job offer for like, sort of like your first, that was, it must've been quite a big moment to feel you'd entered it. Did you feel like you'd entered a new world when you got that job offer? Absolutely. It's completely euphoric. And, 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 and it was true. I had entered a brand new world. I like, I had the minute I received the offer letter, uh, I had entered into a new socioeconomic sphere that's that is the truth of, of what happened then and, and and it's never gone back from there you know 
Yeah, and, and I think, again, for listeners, it's important for people to realize that sometimes, like, people think, oh, an entrepreneur should, you know, never work for anyone else. Not true. Like, it's, you know, that sometimes the experience you get working for other people, but also, like, what it says about you that other people, you're selling yourself effectively. So you are the product in, a, in the labor market. And that, that got you on the way. So maybe, Absolutely. so, so, so maybe you can sort of like, oh, so you've got a job. And mm-hmm. at, at that stage, you had your kind of your adventure with hip hop enterprise but were you yeah. thinking at that stage you'd seen these these things of well-paid kids on skateboards did you at that stage already have the idea that maybe you could do your own thing at that stage or was it still coming no, no what what happened was um you know I, I went into the job i was not a good programmer yet so you know i just I, i'd done enough to get the job but i wasn't any good so now i go into this environment with people who are actually good right um, so I had to sort of deal with that. So I had to really sort of focus on getting good. That was a challenge. But then um, it was my first time working inside of a corporate environment. So uh, this was a company that went public right before the bust hit. So they, they you know, they, they slipped through the IPO gate right before the bottom <laughs> fell out. And there were about 150 employees at the company at the time. So it wasn't a big company. Um, now it's a much bigger company, uh, but it wasn't, wasn't a big company at the time. But for me, you know, this was the biggest company I'd ever worked at. And it did. And it had enough people to have corporate politics. And I was not adept in corporate politics. And so I was just this like, you know, I, I what was started to happen was my entrepreneurial personality started to come out. I wasn't thinking I'm going to go start a business or anything like that. But definitely my entrepreneurial personality started to come out and started to clash and conflict with the corporate environment that, that I was in. And I made some really, you know, look, I made some mistakes that I, I uh, um, where, you know, I would like go over my, my boss's head to like talk to other people. I, I managed to get audience with the CEO of the company who now, you know, it's interesting. It's like, you know, now he, he's still the CEO of the company and, and, you know, say I am where I am. So we have this like very, very different relationship today, but like, you know, it started back in 2001 where I was like probably, you know, one of the lowest people on the totem pole at his company, you know? And, um, <laughs> And so uh, it's, it, it kind of foreshadowed, I think, where I was going to end up being, uh, you know, in, in life, uh, just based on my ambition and, and, my, and my, uh, my personality. But it was a real clash. And so what ended up happening was after a year, I, I had to go to a much smaller company, um, a company with like 20 people, uh, where I fit in better. But even there, I, I, I still ha- had issues, had issues with how this was done, how that was done, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so stayed there for a year and, and you know, I, I made more money, you know, at the next place. So I'm like increasing my, my salary. Uh, and then the third job. So 2001, I was at Hell Street, 2002, I was at this agency called Anode 2003. Um, I started at, uh, I started at a company called Emma and that was like, okay, this was the place where I can live and grow what, for what turned out to be four years. I was the fifth employee. So very, very close to the, to the founders, um, very early in the company. Uh, conception and evolution. I was able to contribute significantly and learn a lot of lessons that were very entrepreneurial lessons without having to have the full responsibility of being an entrepreneur. Um, and after that was when I, I jumped off and really started my, my entrepreneurial journey. And, and, and just before we dig into that, 
I quite often say that people who haven't worked in a big company, they miss out on a kind of education of like how to run an organization, things like sort of weekly meetings, uh, you know, how yeah. a meeting works, stuff like that. Do you think you were learning that without realizing it or did you really sort of spot, oh, that's a good idea to have like a, a weekly town hall or a, a, a monthly briefing from the CEO? I don't, I don't know what there was there, but did you see it? Did you get anything positive or was it all like, I don't like politics and I don't want my company to be like that in the future? I was incredibly immature. I mean, this was, you know, this was a very, very big socioeconomic jump. And, you know, you can just sort of think about what happens when you make those kinds of jumps and you're not properly trained to be in a new environment. You know, you make a lot of gaffes and and and, and there's a lot of valuable things that you don't recognize uh, and don't honor. And so yeah, maybe in hindsight, but I would say I mostly learned those things failing as an entrepreneur and realize and you know scrambling and reaching and realizing oh my god i am terrible at communication i've got to figure out something and so i would like go get a book like you know gino wickman's traction and realize oh i need weekly meetings okay let's do weekly meetings you know what i mean so um no i mean i did not pick up nearly as many lessons as i could have in in the health stream environment largely due to my immaturity mm-hmm. How important was the coding? Like, did you learn, did you get good at coding? Like, and yeah. was that an important, okay. And that was an important. Relatively important. Yeah. Uh, By the time I got to Emma, I got pretty good. Um, okay. And started to actually, you know, um, that, that actually started to sort of build the foundation for my career because uh, you know, where, where I had limits in what I could do at Emma, just from a leadership perspective, I was able to find an outlet in the greater um, PHP programming language community globally. So I would like go to these right. conferences and I started to have a podcast for the language and was writing articles in several different PHP magazines. So I started to like find my ability to build my brand, have a voice, um, be, be a leader um, in a space where there were some caps at the company that you, so, so I didn't feel so stifled there. Um, but yeah, no, no, becoming a coder, it, it's been valuable even up until this point. I mean, you know, understanding how the, and specifically a web programmer, because understanding how the web works has really enabled me to understand businesses, you know, the businesses that we, that run the world today uh, in a way that if I was not a coder, I wouldn't have understood. So let's talk about the jump then, the actual, the big jump, the leap of faith or whatever it yeah, was. Big jump. Took you from, from Emma, I guess it's called Emma, Emma to, uh, to, yeah. to your own business. What happened? What's the story there? Yeah, so Emma was Emma was and is an email marketing business. They they were acquired by Campaign Monitor, I guess, like maybe four years ago. Um, but I sold my stock back to the company, used that to to start a business. Also had a pretty big life event that you may or may want may not want to you know go into, but you know had a separation that happened right at that same time. Um, and uh, and I I started basically a development shop. So you know built a team of programmers. Uh, and we were going out building software for startups, for different entrepreneurs. Okay. And, we, and we would get paid cash, but also took took uh, equity as well. Um, you know, so we were sort of uh, incented. And, you know, uh, this is something I write about in the book, uh, was able to very quickly get the business up over a million dollars in revenue because, you know, I knew how to build programming teams. That, that I learned at Emma. Um, and I knew what good software looked like. So that that wasn't a problem. But... Beyond that, I didn't understand how to run a business. So, you know, uh, there were all these things that I watched Will and Clint do and I wondered about, but I never actually got the lessons. It, the, and this was where, you know, the this was where I started to understand that there was a framework to how to operate a business and I had no idea how it actually worked, which was the beginning of me sort of starting to work on this book. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't understand concentration risk from a customer perspective. I didn't fully understand 
uh, HR, really didn't, didn't understand finance at all. I'm talking like the basic stuff, like total and cost, cost of employee, uh, payroll taxes, just like, I, you know, like really basic stuff, right? Um, I, didn't, I didn't understand, uh, you know, the importance of having a lawyer, the importance of having an accountant. I mean, these are things <laughs> I was sort of doing on my heels while I'm running the business. And, you know, the, 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 the combination of all of these deficiencies in myself as an entrepreneur uh, ultimately led to me having to, you know, shut the business down and fold it into one of the one of my customers' businesses uh, and become a CTO in that business, where you know the team I had built became the development team for that for that right. business. Um, so, so I had to sort of take a detour. Like I, I launched the business, I got to a million in revenue, which is something <laughs> a lot of people don't ever do. But because of all the, you know, all this really really shoddy foundation that I had and just mismanagement left and right ended up having to shut the thing down and fold it into somebody else's thing. Yeah, and, and how did you feel at this time? Because you also mentioned you went through a separation and this probably, we don't want to go into the details of that, but it, you, and you also were talking, you're talking from today's perspective about all the, all the, the gaps in your own knowledge and experience, but how self-aware were you then? Because you also wrote in your book about how you were obsessed by recognition and award ceremonies and you were furious that you weren't startup of the year or something yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. it really bugged you. And, yeah. and this is something that Kim and I have discussed on other occasions, people who just have to be in the limelight. And, it, and like, there are people who are in the limelight who are not successful in business, but totally. boy, boy, are they good at getting in the limelight. And, yeah. um, and, yeah. and, and, and my question to you is really about your your level of self-awareness back then were you sort of feeling that you weren't coping and was it like hyper stressful that you had started a company and you thought it was going to be great and you could see the wheels coming off or were you in the sort of like periscopes down denial mode more periscopes down denial mode drinking quite a bit um it was a it was a it was a it was a full-on low point you know what i mean uh, there's yeah. no question you know in hindsight it was a full-on low point um you know my my ability to process the trauma of the separation and the breakup of the family and all that kind of stuff was just non-existent at all. Um, you know, it, it, this was 2007. So unfortunately you didn't have people saying, Hey, you really should go see a therapist. Like that wasn't a thing. Like now people will openly sort of recommend that kind of right. thing. But like back then that wasn't a thing that people were talking about. So, you know, processing this stuff in all the wrong ways, right. All the wrong behaviors to, to try to work through the trauma, very bad. Um, and then it's spilling out into the business Right. in in these really inappropriate, bad ways. So, no, I mean, it was it was a very, very poor moment of, of, of self-awareness, um, you know, for me and and a lot of uh, unaddressed, unmanaged, uh, you know, trauma responses. So, yeah. But I mean, not, listening not to you now, I mean, you're like, I mean, even just listening to you talk about it. I mean, like you're so it's so clear to you and you talk about it in such a matter of fact way. You've like you've clearly come to terms with a lot of this stuff. And it's like, you you know. You, you 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 recognize it and and just the way you talk about it so clearly you've been through some kind of like <laughs> i don't know like awakening or whatever they, they like so maybe make you help how did you get to that like where like so uh what happened yeah. next i mean obviously <laughs> well years of work right um you know <laughs> like years of work i mean you know i'm i'm almost at the uh, i'm almost at the three year sobriety anniversary. And, and I'm, I'm definitely a little over three years of, of therapy and um, you know, that's, it's work, it's work. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's the answer. There's no, there's no shortcut to it. Um, you know, lots of meditation, um, you know, just lots of, lots of self-reflection uh, writing, you know, writing the book I think was, was therapeutic. Uh, you know, not everything 
that I wrote got published, but even the process of writing it all and getting it all sure. out of my head and heart was, was part of processing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I can talk about it today because I'm not, it, there's no triggers to it. It's like, it's, it's reflective. And then, and then, you know, the other thing I would just say is that, you know, humans are incredibly resilient, right? I mean, if we're able to, you know, uh, trauma is basically inevitable in the human experience. Um, but there is a way to process it. You know, there is a way to process it and come out on the other side. And, um, you know, if we don't have the understanding and, and in many cases, the means to do that, then the, 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 the trauma doesn't really go away and it just kind of stays in the body and it just, you know, continues to sort of ravage your life in a lot of ways. I'm very fortunate that, um, you know, I got remarried. I've got, you know, an unbelievable partner who, you know, was very, very patient while I finally got to the place where I could sort of recognize, hey, I got a lot of work to do. Let me kind of go work on that. Um, I think she's probably happy she stuck around because, you know, I, I'm a much better partner today than I was three years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, you know, you need a little bit of luck and, and a lot of work. That's how you get to get, how you get to the other so side. I, I just, uh, side, I mean, like, so this is a, a different tangent and this is not really business related, but I think it's so important. I mean, like what you just, just talked about, I mean, just that is like, um, we all suffer trauma and, and, and a lot of people don't like know how to deal with it. And the, I mean, you, you, you sort of make it sound like it's 2021 now. Right. And, but still not everybody knows how to, like, there's not even people talk about therapy and stuff like that, but not everybody knows how to, like, not everybody makes it, not everybody gets through it. I mean, so I, I think it's, it's a really nice to hear. I think it's very motivating actually. And I'm sure the people out there listening to this, if you've had any, you know, it, 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 you know, it gives, it gives hope. I, I think that's, that's, I think that's really, I think that's really the thing. So how did you, so, okay. So you folded the, um, you folded your business into this, you became yep. CTO mm -hmm. and then what happened? Yeah. So then I spent four years, uh, you know, on the road between Nashville and, and Boston and San Francisco, um, you know, trying to build uh, a, a, a business on the back of Facebook, along with a bunch of other uh, venture back companies that were trying right. to do the same thing and uh, making a lot of progress until Facebook you know, turned on their ad machine and kicked everybody off their platform. Um, you know, so probably the most famous of all these businesses is Zynga for, you know, all of their right. uh, Farmville stuff. But there were over a hundred businesses like that, um, that lived on Facebook pages or were doing interesting things in the Facebook newsfeed or, you know, a variety of things that Facebook brought us in once a quarter and gave us all these cool, all this cool swag right. and actually helped us, you know, grow our businesses and like, you know, co-sold with us into, you know, big agencies or big brands. And then one day they just turned everything off, um, you know, and there was a, a whole slew of venture based back companies that almost went to zero. Um, you know, uh, I think, I think maybe one or two sort of picked up the scraps from the graveyard and have rolled into semi-successful public companies, but nothing, nothing significant um, at all came out of that. So I spent four years doing that. Um, and that was a big lesson, you know what I mean? Like, like just going through that process, um, you know, uh, working with the leaders in that company and learning from them, you know, both the good things and the, you know, some of the not so good things, um, you know, be, being, understanding like uh, the position that I was in where I was constantly positioned as a co-founder of the business because that was advantageous to the business because I was the most magnanimous person that they had and understood technology and could talk about it the best. So they kind of put me out front, but didn't have a board seat, had less than 5% equity in the company. They would never elevate me to CEO, right? And so 
you know, just like dealing with that lesson of it and, right. and all of the concerns. And, and that actually kind of played into my desire to have recognition because I wouldn't be recognized by the people, you know, who ran the business and, fi and financed the business. Right. So um, there was just a lot, there was just a lot of lessons that happened in that period. And that, that was, that was like the last, uh, the last super big lesson. I, I've continued to learn lessons over the last seven years as I've been, you know, running Jumpstart Health Investors with my partner, Vic, but those lessons have, have, been small in comparison to that, that last really big lesson being CTO in that venture backed, you know, digital marketing company. Yeah. And, and this accelerator you started, I, I sort of read up about that a bit and it called Jumpstart Foundry. And you describe how at the beginning when you were doing it, putting 15K or a bit more into companies yeah. for 7%. So when you started doing it, it was acceptable. And then you put it up by tenfold to so 150K. And, but then yeah. you realized, then there were loads of other people doing it. And you had this sort of yeah. insight about Nashville being very sort of healthcare centric. And that struck me as a really good idea. <laughs> you know, because I, I like a lot of the stuff you did, like, yeah, it's a good idea to set up a set up a development shop in the early 2000s but like it's not a unique idea but you had this like yeah, this smart right. smart idea of a fund based around a, a dominant local industry and at the time did it how did you have that idea? and was it like a moment aha now that is a really good idea because it was a good idea but like were you aware at the time this is this is a good thing a good way to go and differentiate our fund i I think that I had a, a healthy respect for the power of the ecosystems having traveled to Boston and San Francisco so much during the moon toast years. Right. Because like um, it, w it could not have been more clear spending time in those ecosystems that Nashville was like one one hundredth of of either of those ecosystems when it came to tech capabilities, like just not even on the radar, not even close. But people who weren't traveling to those places and spending a lot of time in those places and building relationships in those places you know, you just didn't have that, that honest perspective. And so, you know, when it was time to end that, I was like, I know I want to be in Nashville, but I'm not going to lie to myself. I have to be intellectually honest and say Nashville has no chance where it stands today of being a, you know, a tech mecca. It's just not even remotely close. And so if that is true, how do I do something where, where we can be successful? We want to be, be in venture. Okay. You know, 75% of venture happens in three places, Boston, New York, and San Francisco, right? So we're, we're already, you know, part of the 25% of the rest of the United States. We're already small, you know, pennies, uh, you know, down here. How do we, uh, what's our advantage? How, how are we going to win? How is this not going to be yet another failure in my, in my learning process as an entrepreneur? I don't want another failure. I want to like do something and have it actually work, you know? And, um, and, you know, I just kind of said to, to my partner, I said, listen, we, we have to do this. I mean, I know it's, it, it feels like we're limiting ourselves and it feels like it's niche, but I think it's a big enough market. And I think it's, it's a path to win, you know, and it's like seven years later, we're now at a hundred million in AUM and, you know, expect to hopefully be at 200 million in AUM next year. And, uh, for, for yeah, the sake of, for the really idea. For the, it was so for the sake of our listeners who are non-technical, uh, what does yeah. AUM mean? Assets under management. So, Assets you know, under, yeah. Yeah, so, so in 2015, you know, we, we had $1 million in AUM. That was our, our first fund, we had raised a million dollars to invest, you know. Uh, and now now we have uh, $100 million that we that we invest, and that doesn't include, like, our co-invest partners and stuff like that. And we're, we're about to head to market to, to, to pretty much double that in the next year. Um, so, you know, just the bottom line is, like, once you get to $100 million in assets under management, you're starting to hit real scale as a venture business and it's you you can start to like really hire people and you know win deals in the market and make significant investments and uh so yeah we're we're 
you know, it takes time to do these things. It, it does take time. Um, but you know, we're in a, we're in a, we're in a pretty strong position today. I'm not, Richard is much more, I'm more of the nuts and bolts entrepreneur. I've set stuff up and built it and worked in it. Yeah. And Richard's more of like the Richard's more in the venture space. So yeah. I, that, that's why I can ask the question because I, I don't actually know. So what does the job actually look like? I mean, like, are, is a lot of your time, like how much of it is like you're pitching to investors, you're, you're, you're trying to bring investors in versus, I don't know, looking at deal, looking at then deals that you want to invest in. Is it, is it, or now maybe you have a business partner, maybe you guys split it up. Like, but what actually do you, do you actually do? Like what, or what was it? I was, and maybe it's grown now. I mean, maybe you have other people doing some of this stuff as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, we've, we've got, we've got a team. Uh, we, we actually just hired a CEO to replace my partner, Vic. Um, you know, he's, he's now going out to raise a, a new fund for us. Um, but yeah, there, there's kind of like four things that you have to do and they kind of work into a circle. Right. So the first thing, like, let's, let's say you're starting from day one. Okay. And you don't have a fund, but you want to break into the business. So the first thing you have to right. do is you have to establish some, some credibility. So, you know, what are you credible in? Like, you know, so this, this gets back to the, why we chose healthcare thing. Okay. You know, we can be a successful healthcare venture fund because we're in Nashville. We've got insight that other people don't have. We've got relationships that other people don't have. We can help these businesses, you know, with their strategy, with their business development, you know, with their team building, because this is a talent rich pool for healthcare, blah, blah, blah. So you have to first establish some credibility, that credibility, then, you know, goes into the activity of actually fundraising. And it's exactly what you said. You're going out to accredited investors. You know, when you start out, you're going out to like high net worth individuals because that's all you right. can get. Like fund ones are very mm -hmm. hard to get off the ground. So you're going out to rich people who would otherwise be angel investors, um, maybe family offices, right? Um, and you're right. you're trying to get them to become limited partners in your fund. So you're, you're raising money and, you know, you, you, you have some kind of thesis. Okay, I'm going to invest in, Series A stage companies. I'm going to invest in seed stage companies. Whatever the thing is, you know, you have a thesis, and here, here's how long I'm going to invest. Here's how I'm going to get paid. Here's my fee schedule. Here's my carried interest. What I'm going to make off of it. And are you in? Or are you not in? So you're raising money. Then let's just say you're 100% successful. You raise that fund. Then you go into the process of deploying the capital, right? So you have to go look at all the deals in the ecosystem. You have to evaluate those deals. You have to do diligence on those deals. You have to come to terms with those deals, and then you have to actually execute the deals. That's just the get. That's just the execution part. Then often you'll sit on the board of that company. Um, if the company is early stage, and we do early stage investing, I'm primarily a seed stage investor. So it's like you know, there's a lot of work that happens in the seed stage. So you know, I'm kind of like a team member. You know, I kind of come on board, and it's like, okay, let's you know, let's let's talk every week. Let's set up our hundred day sort of strategic plan. Let's set up our board schedule. You know, what what are we going to do? What are going to be the use of these funds? You know, let's say I put two million dollars in the company. Okay, so we got to go hire a bunch of people. We got to have a go to market strategy. And the, the, the companies that I invest in, they already exist. They've generated some revenue, but like, there's a leap. You know what I mean? Like, we're putting money in to like take the company to the next level, right? And so that generally involves mentoring the founding the founding uh, team the founding ceo and whoever that person's partner is usually they 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 need to they don't know how to report to a board they don't know how to manage a board they don't know how to grow a management team they don't know how to stop doing every single thing and actually become a leader in the business right so establishing that you know all of that with them you know in a kind in a kind way most of the time and sometimes in a firm way you know uh, right. And ultimate, and then and then you you do that over time, and you help them to you know it's their company. You're a minority investor. It's their company, but over time, like you know, they need to hit hit results. And ultimately, you need to generate some some returns. And so you generate returns through 
uh, you know, some type of exit. And that could be the company goes public. That could be the company is acquired by somebody else. That could be a larger finance organization. So let's say a growth stage venture capital firm or a private equity firm buys you out. So they're not yet right. public and they haven't been acquired, but like a larger, a larger financier is going to come in and take you out of the, out of the equation. So those are kind of the three primary ways in which you can generate returns for your limited partners who you raise money from. And then you take those what? results and you yeah. get more credibility and then you raise more money and then you invest in more companies. And that gets the next fund, the next fund. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Yeah. How, what percentage or what, how, like if you have 10 of these startups, how many of them actually succeed or produce a successful exit or, or, or yeah. how, what is the ratio? What do the ratios look like? Yeah. So, so, so different, um, different, firms have different strategies for this, right? Um, but I think what you'll hear most firms say is something between one in 10 to five out of 10. You, very few will say more than 50% will be successful. Um, but you know, the firms that say one in 10, they are expecting that one to like 100x, right? So they, they make up for the, the nine other failures and that yeah. allows them to make really, really big bets, right? Right. Um, where the tolerance for failure is higher because the upside is significantly higher and the right. math all kind of work shakes out. Right. Then you have more conservative folks who are more about, you know, they use a lot of baseball analogies, right? So instead of like home runs, a lot of like, you know, doubles, right? You know what I mean? Right. And the people who are shooting for doubles, they're kind of looking to get, you know, 50% of the portfolio right. across the line, right? Because, you know, you kind of can get right. the same number of runs in right. if you get more success right. across the line. So, you know, um, I, I think that's that's generally what you see uh, is somewhere between. And where, where are you guys? Where are you? Are you guys? Are you guys hitting doubles or homers? Well, look, I mean, I I, I think that so 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 we've got multiple funds in our platform. I I personally am running a fifty million dollar fund uh, that's called Jumpstart Nova that's investing exclusively in companies with black founders. You know, one thing that you'll never hear any VC say publicly that actually respects their portfolio is what percentage they expect to go public or they, they expect to be successful because ultimately you don't make a bet that you don't think is going to work. So, right, of course, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? So like, I, I want all my co portfolio companies to be successful. I don't want any of them to think that I, I think they're going to, they're right. going to go to a failure, but the reality, the reality yes. is that some percentage will, will fail. Right. But, um, but at the moment I, I, we haven't fully landed on that. There, there is a strategy by which you come up with your allocation model. We're actually still yeah. developing it because it, you know, we're, we're the first fund of our kind exclusively investing in innovative healthcare companies that have black founders has never been a fund like this before. And so there's not enough data on the ecosystem to, to easily come up with an allocation model. So we're still gathering information and, and, and coming up with that. That's cool. Interesting. Uh, so, in, in um, so this is a bit of a, a jump, a jump back. You wrote, you. I, I, what I will do is we'll put in the show notes your sort of your eight points of every business. But I'm yeah. curious because I, I think just to run through them like a list would be quite. I'd really recommend people who are interested in Marcus's uh, views on this look at the show notes or better buy the book because that'll make Marcus happier yeah, <laughs> as well. Please, thank you. Uh, uh, but. Um, were they was were these your ideas? Because some of the things I read sound it's almost let, I felt like I'd read it somewhere before. Did you sort of like sit down and research it and read other people's business books and like pick out the ideas you liked, or did you just is this a, like your brain dump or what was your book writing process? Yeah, well, I, I, I've definitely you know I've read a lot of business books over the years, right? So there's undoubtedly other 
other ideas that are in there. And I tried where possible to give attribution to kind of say, listen, this is, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not seeking to reinvent the wheel, but the, the structure of the framework of the eight core concepts, the order, the specific names of them, the definitions of them and what fits in them and why, why this is the complete system. Uh, that's new. I, I, you know, I didn't, I don't think you can find that anywhere out there. So, um, you know, you, you, you might find something similar to it, but like it, I, it wasn't inspired by anything. It was literally created because this was, this was a gap that I found in the market. Right. I mean, you know, it's like there, there were the, the, you know, the, the Steve blank books and the Eric Reese books and, you know, all, all sort of the popular titles. Um, but they sort of assumed a fundamental understanding of like, what is the scaffolding of every single business and, 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 uh, and, what you need to be thinking about in order to make sure that business is complete and on a solid foundation. And, uh, that, that was something I felt was missing. And so that that's my contribution to, you know, the overall world of business thought leadership. Is the it, 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 it is interesting. It is interesting. And I noticed you said earlier when you were a teenager, you were a captain of a school sports team or a high school yeah. sports team yep. where, where, where yep. leadership is required. And I always work to the definition of leadership that it's the ability to get a group of people to work towards a common goal willingly. And and your definition, I'm, I'm now going to read it for, yeah. so you don't have to memorize it, is that leadership is to create a culture in which a business can thrive. And they're, slight, they're, they're slightly different, but um, do, do you think that your definition, because leadership is hard to define, but is that one you stick by or are there other ways of describing leadership? Or if someone's listening and they've never thought about leadership, is is that is your definition the, the definition? No, no, of, of, of course not. It's it's the definition that's appropriate within the framework that I've developed, right? Um, so, for, so first of all, I said, you know, it's, it's creating a culture in which a business can thrive. Well, obviously, leadership spans beyond business. There's leadership in all work, walks of life. You can be a leader in your family, right? I mean, you could be a leader in your church or your, you know, spiritual community. You can be a leader in your in your neighborhood. So none of those things are businesses, right? So obviously, my definition is not the universal and you know, ultimate definition, but in the context of a framework for how to think about business and how to think about what leadership means in that context, I think it's a pretty solid definition. Yeah. And, and I'm, I, I'm, we're all on the same page with culture. It's so important. And if you were like walking around a business, imagine that it was something is an existing company that already exists, might be you're considering to invest in it, or maybe just you're on a visit for whatever reason. What would be, for you be like a, a red flag for the culture that makes you something you might see or hear or observe as you wander through a business that might think, aha, maybe there's something wrong with the culture. What would be your red flags? The, the, you know, just the interactions of the people, the way that the people interact is, is, is really it. Right. And that's, that's the living embodiment of the culture. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's so important. The reason why I say like, it's, it's about creating a culture in which a business can thrive is that the leader cannot be present in all scenarios at all times. So they have to create something that, that, uh, exists without their presence. Right. Um, and if you, you know, if I have to be in the room for everyone to, to, to behave a certain way, it's not, it's not there. Right. It's gotta be something that, everybody is embodying and carrying out, uh, you know, in all of their interactions with every single other person and even in their individual, you know, focused uh, efforts. Right. So um, that's, that's why, that's why it's about the culture and not about sort of the way that you influence any particular individual person. Right. 
Yeah, Marcus, that's such an important point. And again, for anyone listening, this is like, if you are thinking of building a business one day, it's such a good test. What is going to happen when you're not around? Like when you're there, it's one thing. And very often business people are very competitive. They're, it's very much about them and what they're going to do. But it's not about that. It's about getting other people to do that, do that thing or work in that way. So that that's a super, that's a really, really good, good test. Thank you for that. And I don't know, is there anything you want to ask about that, Kimon? Because I want to change change subjects. Have you got any reflections on leadership or culture? You want I mean, to I think culture is... So, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, I've set up two companies. One, um, yeah, two, basically two uh, companies here in, in, in Poland. And they're, they're, they're both quite big. And the, I'm amazed at what this is. This culture, it's just, it's, it has a life of its own. Like I'm yeah. talking like intent, like and like there's stuff like it just goes. I'm like I can go in like later and like you know in a company that I that, that I haven't even been involved in and I can see stuff that's there that's from somehow that's been passed down through generations of employees because you know this is a long time. I mean I'm talking about like 20 years or something like yeah. that. And you see stuff and it's like crazy. It's actually it's a living, breathing organism, but it's so hard to quantify what culture. So for me, culture is a fascinating concept. I honestly, I, I may have created cultures. I have no idea what they, I have no idea how to, to under, I don't truly understand them, to be honest yeah. with you, because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's incredible, really. I mean, yeah. so, 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 and, and I, I think, I think they are very mysterious, but I, but I think you can, I think that's why I wanted to tackle it, right? Um, because, because it's mysterious. It's like, how, you, you know, we're always sort of, you know, in wonder of it, but it's, fairly rare to see a business that's thriving where that that mysterious phenomenon is not present right you know it what i mean to be. oh absolutely i agree right? it's, a, it's, so, a, it's 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 absolutely yeah and what i love about it is that those those cultures in which businesses happen to thrive are not a monolith they're not homogenous they could they can no. be very widely varied right and so a lot of it has to do with um, the authenticity of the of the leader, and and uh, building sort of a team around some some qualities of engagement and and values that just permeate as these are the social norms, and then these are the standards of of how we how we sort of execute here, right? And those things just become I'm just setting the foundations for how we do what we do, the how, right? Okay, Marcus, um, and, the, and, and, and that can exist you, far beyond you. Let me give you a challenge. This is a challenge. This is something that yeah. I, this is something I personally am facing. Uh, so we do in one of the businesses I'm involved in, we do quite a few uh, acquisitions. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets crazy. So now imagine you have your culture and you buy another company that has its culture. And then we've done four of them, actually. So, you've, so, so then what do you have? Like, that's where it gets like, that's, uh, this is the stuff we're trying to constantly, you know, um, and I've, I mean, I don't know what you think. I've, I'm coming to the conclusion that I want to keep sort of like local, like the idea of there's one culture is probably very difficult to yes. achieve. Rather, yes. we all be- we all believe in generally in a couple things, but you got but locally you can believe and do however you want because otherwise they're not going to be happy if you force another culture on you know, you know one culture onto another and stuff like you're, that. You're 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 making an incredible point, right? Which is that. Uh, if you if you look at mergers and acquisitions, um, the decisions where companies said we're 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 acquiring the asset because it makes sense strategically for our businesses, and we have we we have we have synergies that we can leverage better if we're all under one roof. But we understand that what made this thing 
this thing is the culture and we're not going to muck with that. Um, eventually it always does get tested, but generally speaking, the ones who have at least gone in with that, with that uh, approach, I think they do better. I think yeah. they do better, you know, and you try to figure out how do we, how do we make the two companies that are now one work together in partnership as opposed to trying to make one become make two become one. Exactly. It's like marriage, right? Exactly. It's like, you know, anyone's yes. gone through marriage counseling will be taught <laughs> a lot in the beginning. You're not going to merge into one person. You are two strong individuals <laughs> and you have to sort of be, you know, two pillars of a larger structure. You don't want to give up who you are to enter into this partnership. It's a partnership, that's, right? That's, that's a brilliant, that's a brilliant analogy. In our case, it's a polygamy. We've got multiple. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, 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 just like in, just like in polyamorous relationships that just increases the, the complexity. That's all, that's all you've done. Well, I think, that, I think that's a whole nother podcast. I was going to say, we, I, 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 for, for everyone, for everyone listening, we've got three, three divorced entrepreneurs, but two, two of them, two, two of them, have, two of them have remarried and I'm not one of them. <laughs> I'm not the one. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not one of them. But it's, um, but I, I also am really interested. Like our podcast is called Entrepreneurship and Leadership. And you made a really interesting point about entrepreneurship in the blurb of the book about how entrepreneurship is replacing education as the, as the new equalizer of power. And that sounded to me a little bit, a little bit politi political. And I'm really, and like, no, there's no dispute that here in Poland, in in many countries, things are really unequal, and people look at these successful entrepreneurs with a mixture of like admiration and envy, and a feeling: is this is this right? And money is power in a way. Money converts to power. So, can you talk a little bit about wh where you see entrepreneurship? Because what I liked was that you don't imply that entrepreneurship's for everyone, and educate, or maybe it is. So, or not, maybe differently. Maybe you didn't imply that everyone should be an entrepreneur, I guess, is what yeah. I read. In, uh, but yeah, uh, I can, you, can, can you just reflect on why you think entrepreneurship is, the, is replacing education as the great leveler of power? And, and, and what do you think entrepreneurship people should take, about, or take away on your views of entrepreneurship? Yeah, so mon money is, a, money is a, um, a, a tangible, measurable, math-based uh, representation of value. Right. And and we use it to exchange uh, value. That's 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 what it's it's standing in for the barter system that we had before we had money. Right. Where I did something for you, you did something for me. So money is this intermediary that allows us to have a much more complicated value exchange system. That's all it really is. Um, and, you know, so so let's get step away from money and talk about value. So where is value created? Um in a world where we've never had a population this size before, um, you know, we've never had sort of the complexity of how we all get along as people in the world like this before, you know, we, we have, we have unprecedented problems, right? So value is attached to solving these unprecedented problems, right? Um, and so solving unprecedented problems means innovation. It means in, in how do you, um, systematically deploy innovation through a business. So entrepreneurs are sort of in, you know, they are professionals at systematically innovating and they are going to capture the biggest value because they are addressing the unending list of new problems that are in the world. We had a simpler world uh, in, during the industrial revolution. The world was just simpler. It wasn't as heavily populated. The, the, the way that we sort of the, the problems were more straightforward. We've got unbelievable problems right now. Um, 
And so it's, it's real, it's really a, a byproduct of the world that we live in, right. You know, where entrepreneurs are of an importance today that they were not of an importance, you know, 50 years ago. And that's what I mean by that. Education is a much slower burn system. It's got many more checks and balances. It's got accreditation. It's got peer review. It's got all these things. The problems we have in the world cannot wait for that system. It's just, it's just not viable, right? So we need solutions now, 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 now. And the market, quite frankly, does not care about what the education system thinks. The market is like, solve problems, we pay. And so that's what I mean. <laughs> You know, um, that it, it's just the reality of the world. It's the only intellectually honest way to look at what is happening in the world today. You know, show me the people that have the most money and I will show you the people who have the most political power. And I will show you the people who have you know, who own the most land. And I will show you the people that control the most resources. And I will show you the people who can most influence society. And that's fairly undisputable. You know, and that was not always the case. You know, we used to live in a time where artists and poets had a tremendous amount of influence. This is not, not true anymore. You know, the most influential person is Elon Musk. That is the truth. You know, um, this is a guy who can, who can speak, you know, in, in like really, really disrespectful ways to public, public officials as the CEO of a publicly traded company. It's like, this couldn't have happened 20 years ago. Like, let's, 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 also, Elon Musk in America, if he was Russia or China, that like the, the guy who ran Alibaba was kicked out, right? So. Correct. One thousand percent. So 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 then it sort of it, it sort of says, OK, well, well, how does entrepreneurship run in any, in any particular jurisdiction? There's a really, really important point you just brought up there. Right. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, in, in China and in Russia, those are two great examples. Um, entrepreneurship is still really important, but it will be controlled by the state. Right will be controlled by the state. So the, so, you know, and, and it's controlled by the state because the state controls the military, <laughs> you know, um, and in America, we don't have that kind of system here. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the, the military, you know, it cannot be deployed against the people, um, you know, uh, to, to, to limit free market uh, capitalism. That's just not the way we're, you know, it's designed here. Well, I'm, as a non-American, I'll just say I'll, I'll take I'll take this as as as, as the truth, and, and it's not the main focus of our podcast. So thank, yeah, thank no, you. but thank you. No, it's, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating like discussion for sure. But, but possibly, possibly another podcast. You run a you yeah. run a when you run a, a football club, you mean a Nashville. FC is a soccer 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 because yeah. like. Uh, What's it like running a soccer club? Because like usually the people who do that, it's either a vanity project, but you did it as a, you're running it as a, and I'm, I'm just being blunt if it sounds disrespectful. Yeah. No, I'm not trying to be. This is a business, right? It was amateur and then you took it professional. And is it like, yeah. a, is this a real business that makes a profit? Or is it more like you've got some billionaire billionaires who are like putting money in and they, they, they're in the hospitality boxes and feeling like, you know, I, I, th I think. God. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so I think the truth is it's a little bit of both. In 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 America, um, it's it's different than it is in in Europe, um, because it's a sport on the ascent. It's not a sport that is the dominant sport, right? So in Europe, soccer is the dominant sport, like by a wide margin. So it's very very expensive. The idea that you're really going to make money in it is like questionable, right? So I think I think there's a lot more sort of vanity to it. In America, you're talking about a sport that's got a ton of upside, right? Um, the NFL would be the equivalent of you know soccer or, or or you know football in Europe, 
where if you're buying into it, I mean, maybe you're going to make money. I mean, I guess you will because it's already sort of well-established, but it takes so much to buy in, like so much yeah. money to buy in. That is just like, it's it's hard to make sense of it other than it being a vanity thing that you just want to be able to say you're in the club. Um, whereas soccer, you know, if you buy, if, if you, if you buy into, um, in, into major league soccer and you, and you buy a team, um, you're buying into the future of soccer in America. And there's a ton of upside there, a ton of upside. And so, yes, it is the kind of expense that it is long-term. It will take a lot of capital. Only billionaires can play. That is the truth. Okay. I, I'm a minority owner. I have less than 1% ownership stake, full transparency. Um, but you know, it's got, it's got upside. If you look at it over a 25, 30 year, you know, lens, and you look at where America is going from a demographic perspective, and you look at the sports that millennials are into, and you look at, you know, the continued growth of the um, Hispanic Latinx population in America, it's pretty clear that soccer is on the ascent in a way that no other sport in America is. Some, some sports in America are on the descent from where they were. No question about this. So that's why I say it's a little bit of both, right? You know, only billionaires can play. That's the reality. There's no question that there is a vanity aspect to it. I mean, it's just not honest to say that there's not some of mm -hmm. that to it, but um, you know, there's a lot of upside in, in investing in it. And then I think the other thing that I would say, uh, which is a dimension you didn't bring in, which is there's a lot of civic pride that comes with having a sports team in, in a city. And I think many of, uh, not all, not all, but it is certainly the truth, the, the truth in Nashville, our billionaire, which is John Ingram, um, a big motivating factor for him was civic pride. Um, you know, he, wanted to do something for the city that would, you know, continue to put it on the trajectory to be a city of the future. I think that was, you know, my involvement with it was that we have football, we have hockey. If you go to those games, you know, the makeup of the fan base, pretty homogenous. If you go to our soccer games, it, you see a different view of Nashville attending our soccer matches. And that's awesome, right? We have a really, really um, significant new, new American population which is, you know, largely made up of Mexicans, but also Iranians and, and um, you know, uh, Somalians and, uh, you know, and people from around the world, um, Nigerians and, uh, you know, Ethiopians. And it's really, really cool that we have a sport that in their land would be, you know, the number one sport, right? That, that now is it like a hometown thing that they can support and they can feel civic pride in something that is much more culturally relevant to them than some sport like ice hockey, which no disrespect, like the Predators are an incredible organization. They do great. But like, you know, what, 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 what do Mexican people care about ice hockey? Not a lot, you know. So, 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 so adding a sport that actually brought, a part, brought the city together in a way that nothing else did was, was part of the initiative. That's fantastic. I had never thought of that. Though. That's news, news to me and if there are any people out there. So maybe it's a good idea to make an, an American soccer investment fund and start buying into clubs, do you think? <laughs> I, I think there are a couple. They're, they're, they're probably in a closed group, uh, you know, but, but I, I think they already kind of exist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you, you talked about how on, uh, the orchestration of a business changes you and about the enjoying the journey and the, the, the importance of that. And, you know, if you could summarize what you had to say about, you know, the entrepreneurial journey in a few words, and then also maybe reflect on where you see your journey going. If we came back in five or 10 or 20 years time, what would be going on in Marcus's life to mean that, you know, 
that the next chapter was because I mean the first, you've been very open about it. It hasn't been always easy. You've had some tough times. You're successful now, but it's relatively recent that you've really sort of got your got yourself together, which may mean you're in a better place for the next twenty years than you were in the past twenty years. It certainly seems maybe seems that way, even even if you're getting older, <laughs> and, and as yeah. you get older, things stop working as well in some ways. So. Um, so, yeah. what, what do you, reflections on the journey so far, and what's what, what's that, and lessons to learn from that, and the key bits of it, and how it's changed you, and maybe the next the next chapter or two or three. Yeah. So, so you know, I wrote the book really about the last twenty years. Um, you know, the most significant thing of the last twenty years is I, I along with my family, um, we collectively successfully raised two boys. They're twenty two and twenty. They're amazing, um, and you know, that ranks far above any business success I could have had. So I feel incredibly successful about the last 20 years. Uh, and then I think if you add into it that, um, you know, I, I've married a wonderful uh, person and we have a really great relationship. Um, that's awesome. And my parents, thank God, are still alive and healthy. And, uh, and I'm healthy and I have a, you know, a healthy lifestyle. Uh, in terms of, you know, not drinking, going to therapy, meditating, you know, working out, you know, sort of five times a week and competing as an athlete in my forties. Um, I feel like I'm in a pretty great place. Uh, then if you layer on the business stuff on top of that, uh, you know, it, it, it just sort of has to be said demographically, I I'm like a unicorn, uh, in, in America, like, you know, a, a black venture capitalist who like, is in the healthcare space and totally controls his time and has ownership in a professional sports team. Like, you know, there ain't a lot of me around. So, um, you know, I'm doing pretty good. And, uh, you know, assuming all of the current trends continue, uh, it feels like a pretty joyous ride. So, you know, um, nothing is guaranteed. And, uh, you know, I try to I try to be as grateful as I can every day and live in the moment. But, you know, I would say my own personal journey has been better than i deserve. And, um, you know, I'm very, I'm very, very grateful for everything that I have. I think the entrepreneurial journey uh, is one that you have to be very reflective of uh, and, and really, uh, you know, do your best to try to recognize all the moments where all of the really hard things that you went through uh, shaped you in really, really important ways and, and find ways to be very, very grateful for those very, very difficult things. Um, I think that's, that's the, the, the healthiest way to sort of approach your overall story. And, you know, I have to admit writing, I think everybody should write a book um, if for no other purpose than their own, their own processing and their own reflection and their own ability to sort of make sense of their life experiences um, and start to see trends and themes and realize, I think you come into realizations about your life when you do it, you sort of realize, oh my gosh, this thing that happened is directly connected to this thing. I never put two and two together, but it's sort of, it's almost inevitable. As you start to spill it all out, you, you, re you recognize and you're like, wow, this, this is amazing, you know? Um, and everybody's life is probably worthy of a book. You know what I mean? Like our, our lives are incredible. The fact that we, we have lives are, are incredible. So yeah, you know, look, an entrepreneurial journey, I think to me is just, is just one, one form of a human journey. Uh, it's a great one. I certainly endorse it. I wrote a book about it for for a good reason. And I think that, you know, many of us entrepreneurs, uh, you know, we, we, we grow up a little lonely and a little on the outside because like a lot of the structures of the industrialized industrial, you know, 
revolution-based world were not designed for us. You know what I mean? We're like creative. We're, we're, we, you know, we're not necessarily fully valued. Like uh, a bit know. of mis misfits in a way. We're not quite fitting yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, and then all of a sudden, like, we get out in the world and we're free and then we're like maybe overvalued in a really weird way. So it's a, you know, trying to find the middle ground where you're never too high and never too low is a process, right? It's a, it's a process. So that's what I would just say, you know, the journey is the journey is the journey. Enjoy it. You know? mm. And um, would you say you're a competitive person? For sure. No question. you got brothers and sisters. I do. Did you beat them at sports when you, I, I, was, just... I was the baby. I was the baby by a large margin. And so I have brothers and sisters, but I'm effectively an only child. Um, effectively, in terms of like, like, I grew up basically by myself. My, you know, I'm, I'm 45. My old, my, uh, my oldest sibling is 20 years older than me. Um, so, you know, and the other one's not that far, not that far from there. So, I effectively grew up as an only child, even though I, you know, now that we're all adults, I mean, we all sort of get along. I'm going to New York to see my sisters this weekend. When you play when you play games with your boys when they're a bit younger, say they were ten and twelve, would you let them win to stop them, or would you always give them a hard game and beat them? I, I would, I would, uh, I, I would, I would do different things depending on what 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 they what I felt they needed at the time, right? So if I felt like they were getting too high, I would present a greater challenge for them. You know, I didn't. I didn't try to project my own stuff. You didn't just crush them. No, 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 no. Of course not. Of course not. Because, because I, because I knew, because I knew how important getting wins was. You know, like yeah, I'm like, joking. Like you, yeah, yeah. You have to have a memory of winning to like know yeah. what that's like, and of course, to, and to, of course, and to, and to build that into your identity. You know that you're not always going to win, but you're a winner, right? You know. And as, as a and you were you were divorced, Dad. These were kids you had with your wife, who you split up with, right? That's so right. so yeah. so did you did, do you think you might have been a bit tougher if you'd been living under the same roof or did you have to like turn it down a bit because you didn't want to be too sort of like this fierce absent dad or stuff like that no 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 question you have to optimize the time that you have with them and that and that it's like everything right you know uh the the, the change in access changes your approach so yes no question doesn't mean doesn't mean I, I didn't have to discipline them you know i was still the dad and there were still times where they needed discipline and that that had to happen. Um, but yeah, no, I tried as much as I could to kind of, you know, make make happy times for sure. Mm. You know. And it, if you imagine someone listening to this, who's like the reason they're listening is they're wondering whether they should be an entrepreneur. And if there was any advice you could give to someone who they're really they're still not sure that they hear you. They've heard other people on our podcast. Maybe they've read other books and they're still wondering what is there any like advice or lessons you draw out from your journey that you think it'd be really good if they knew this about Marcus's story that if there's one thing they're going to remember from your life that might might help them I I, I think the biggest thing is just knowing that failure is not fatal I think people have um they, they won't admit it and they won't say it but the reason why they don't try things is because they think there's no recovery from you know, and uh, it, this is just simply not true, and especially not in the world today. I mean, you know, you, you can get a job, you know what I mean? So it's like you can get a job, you can recover from from your from your credit going bad. I mean, it took a long time, but I did. You know what I mean? Like uh, it's it's like, you know, but you can never um, you can never make up for something that you thought about doing but didn't do, you know, so just, you know, don't. Don't leave the don't leave the question unanswered, right? If, if you try entrepreneurship and you really realize for some very good reasons, it's not for you, 
that is much better than always going around wondering and never no actually regrets. finding out for no yourself. Regrets. No regrets. Yeah. Go, go try, go try. You, it's, it'll be okay. Like I promise you will be able to get a job if, if, if something goes wrong and you fail, yeah. no question. Fantastic. Any, any last questions from you, Kimon? Well, I love what you said. I don't have any more questions. Uh, just, I guess I'll just start to wrap it up, but I, I do love what you said about, cause actually that you said a couple of things here that just remind, like I could have said them, like I feel exactly the same way. And one of the things you just said was about the kid, your kids. Cause like, as much as like, you know, people often look at me and they say, oh, well, you've been very successful. You've done this, you've done that. But I, I actually do feel that my biggest success is actually my kids. Um, and, and like, that's the thing, that's the thing that really matters. And, and so anybody listening, that's actually the stuff that really matters. Like we're sitting here talking about building these companies and doing all this stuff, but like the biggest projects, <laughs> the most rewarding projects are actually the ones that are right in front of your face, actually. Cause those are, I mean, that I, I can honestly say that, um, from ha also having sort of grown up kids, uh, that that's, that just gives me huge pleasure to see that. And to, and, and it makes me happy that I somehow participated in that. So I'm totally with you on that. Um, and I love what you said, you know, so I'm like, just so you know, Marcus, so I'm like, I'm, I was, I'm not sure if you can tell from my accent. Actually, I was born in Brooklyn as well. Um, oh, I love I, it. I, 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 I didn't know, but I did wonder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in New Jersey, but I did, I was okay. born in Brooklyn. I spent most right of my what youth in 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 uh in new jersey and i actually played soccer and then i moved relatively young to europe and i've always been a big fan of soccer uh like like the u.s team and you know because i'm patriotic yeah. and stuff like that yeah. and what you say about the future of soccer like got me excited because maybe we can you know through this like if in the next 20 years if i've always felt huge potential for the U.S. in terms of so like, I'm just okay. I know we were talking about the business stuff, and I, it, it yes, actually ties we, in. We, we could talk about this. Yeah, yeah, but it does tie in directly because the the the, um, the the huge number of people I've always told people here in Europe, the huge number of people that actually play soccer growing up in the U.S. It's just that then there's all these other big money sports that that gobble them up basically. But it's very exciting that you're sort of involved in in making soccer, uh, you know. And I agree with you. It's also the demographics, because you know, you know, I mean, like we're gonna have, like the U.S. is more and more. I mean, okay, maybe the current government and the, the current policies might be different, but eventually it's gonna be more and more. I think we're gonna be back to the immigrant ways. And if you're in the immigrant ways, the game people know is soccer. So anyway, that's totally side note of that. That I, I thought that was really cool, and I totally agree with you about that stuff. Well, um, um, to, 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 just to put an entrepreneurial note here, like yeah. part of part of entrepreneurship is spotting an idea whose time is coming. Like at the time it's obvious is too late. You need to spot what's the spot, the opportunity of tomorrow today, uh, because uh, oh, and position yourself as you are in healthcare in Nashville. Like if, if, if it's great now is a good job you started five years ago, right? It's, it's obvious. That's right. So, That's so right. the time, the best time to start is five years ago. <laughs> and, and, totally. and, and obviously, Obviously, you can jump in late and be successful, but but uh, I think I'll, uh, so. Um, from my point of view, there's been a lot to learn, and you know, just this sort of mixture of hard work and honesty with yourself, and not and getting good at stuff and working hard and uh, being tolerant of failure, and also not embracing failure in the sense that you want to be successful. Now, <laughs> failure is not a badge of pride; it's a scar no. from which you can learn. Maybe, yeah, but. Right. But um, thank you so much. And I, I'm just going to hand over to Keeman. There's a few people we need to thank apart from you, Marcus. 
Thank you. Well, as always, thanks to the people that have been sitting with us for an hour and 20 minutes or so. Yeah, uh, I hope you found it as enjoyable as we have. I, actually, I can't speak for Richard, but I've very much enjoyed the time here with Marcus. Me too, me too. Uh, thank you to Magda Fantakidis, who does the graphic design and video editing for us. Um, Magda Buiskosch, uh, our intern, who does PR and promotion. Everybody at MBN who does all the technical stuff that gets this up on all those platforms that allows everybody to listen to this. Um, so yeah, if you've liked this, please subscribe at MBN, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts and obviously like comment, share love and whatever you do to appreciate this. We don't make any money from it. We do it for fun. It's a hobby. Um, so let's get the word out. Marcus, thank you so much. Really, I thought it was like, it was a really interesting conversation. Really cool. I loved hearing, uh, like, I, I don't, you know, I, I hate to compare guests, but like you've been extraordinarily forthright, extra, extraordinarily humble um, and open about your story. And I, I just find that very, just very, it's a, it's a wonderful listen. And, and, I, and I hope everybody else will agree with me. So thanks. Thanks for that. Thank, thank you for a wonderful conversation, guys. You, you, you set the table and, uh, you know, invited uh, to us to have a human conversation versus a business conversation. And I, I, I loved it. So thank you so much.